when terrorist groups like Hamas uh, brought not only terror, but sheer evil. This is innocent people, babies, mothers, kidnapped. Why do you do this? Piles of 10 children each were tied to the back, burned to death. The, the depravity of it is, is haunting. People have said that they, have, that they saw beheaded children of varying ages. Hamas is holding 199 hostages, according to the Israeli military. Posters of some of the hostages taken by Hamas have been torn down. From the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. What happens to Israel? Do you know what from the river to the sea means? That means to erase me! To erase my existence! Hey, Ron. Hey, Yasha. How are you this morning? I'm good, thank you. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. I'm, it's early, I'm caffeinated, and ready to roll here. You know, it's been a head-spinning couple of weeks now for people trying to make sense of, uh, of a lot of the reaction that they've been seeing, uh, particularly on the left. And I, uh, I've found myself increasingly grateful, not only for having spent so much time with your book um, over the last couple of months, but the really thorough conversation we had uh, on politicology, walking through, I think, the most detailed um, history of this identitarian uh, synthesis that we see uh, in so much of the left. But for many people, that may have been uh, toward the academic end of conversation. And it's, you know, as appalling as it is, what we've seen over the last couple of weeks, a lot of what we've seen on the left in terms of the the reaction, especially in, in academia, is sort of predictable based on uh, the understanding that you've you've laid out. So I thought maybe we could spend some time having you connect the dots for people who, who are really, really confused by what they've seen, if that's okay. Of course. Um, uh, thanks for thinking of me for this. And you know, I sort of um, wasn't entirely surprised by uh, the reaction on, on, on some parts of the left, right? We should say that much of yeah. the left has been deeply horrified by Hamas's, uh, you know, attack on 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 1,400 people that they murdered um, and that the Democratic Party on the whole has uh, uh, been very forthright in its critique uh, and its criticism of these attacks. Um, and uh, showed solidarity with victims in appropriate ways. But there has been this loud, um, persistent, and in some ways influential fringe of left that has celebrated it, that has yeah. uh, refused to condemn it. And and on that, I have to say, unfortunately, given all the reading I've done in the last years and all the thinking I've done about how uh, this new ideology works in parts of the left, I, I wasn't entirely surprised by that. So let me just offer the people who are listening here uh, a a sampling of what we're talking about uh, in terms of higher education anyway, and we can get into some other parts of the left that uh, aren't directly in academia. But just sticking to academia for a minute, in cities across the globe, there have been uh, rallies and chants for jihad, jihad, jihad. Um, Muslim armies rescue the people of Palestine. There's this slogan now that I think everybody has seen somewhere on social media, but it's pretty ubiquitous. From the river to the sea, 
Palestine will be free. And this is, of course, a reference to the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, and uh, and it's an explicitly anti-Zionist, anti-Semitic statement that um, you know followed logically to its conclusion would lead to um, uh, removing the Jewish state altogether. Um, there are also people putting up posters with the faces of people taken captive by Hamas, and then trailing right behind them are people who are tearing them down. And as they tear them down, they say, this is for Palestine. Um, at UCLA, the chapter of Students for Justice in Palestine, uh, which is the most active anti-Israel and anti-Zionist student group in the country, held a walkout for Palestine. They had signs that read Zionism equals terrorism and stop U.S.-backed Palestinian genocide. And then there are some of the professors, um, which, is, which is even more alarming. You, you kind of expect some kind of insanity among student groups on campuses uh, occasionally, but the professors really, um, really caught everyone's attention. There was a Cornell professor who said he was exhilarated by the Hamas attacks, and that was at a protest. Uh, a Yale University law professor reposted a news video detailing the Hamas attack and captioned it, it's been an extraordinary day. And then in response to a journalist saying civilians are civilians, she said, settlers are not civilians. This is not hard. Um, there was a Columbia University professor who called the terrorist attacks awesome and a stunning victory. Um, and I think a lot of people have seen this one. The NYU Student Bar Association president put out a statement that blamed Israel for the terror attacks that Hamas carried out. So, Yasha, in the past um, really four or five days, as, as this stuff has begun to pick up steam, I've been hearing privately from uh, my liberal friends in the United States and Europe uh, about how scared they are, um, about what they're seeing, about what seems like a really vast moral darkness that they're, that they're, they're suddenly seeing among their peers. And, and I said, you know, before, thanks to your, your extraordinary work in the identity trap, this has all been perfectly predictable to me. And this is where I'd like you to connect the dots for people um, whose heads are still spinning by what they're seeing. So, you know, thank you for laying out so clearly in, in detail, some of those reactions. Many of them were from individuals, but, but many of them were from organizations that should have some kind of internal mechanism to make sure that uh, people don't say stuff that doesn't represent their considered views. So we can assume that uh, their statements do represent the considered views of at least many people in those organizations. I mean, one thing that I'd add is a, a chapter of Black Lives Matter in Chicago that mm. uh, shared an invitation to a Palestinian solidarity protest that featured uh, paragliders, um, yeah. uh, which are, you know, which, which, which is a visual reference to the people who paraglided into that music festival in southern Gaza, at which, um, you know, close to 200 uh, uh, people attending a rave and dancing to music in the middle of the night were murdered in, in horrific ways, many of them taken hostage. Um, so how is all of this possible, right? I mean, uh, yeah. uh, I, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm on the left and um, uh, have always been attracted to the left because it claims to care about uh, people equally because it claims to want a kinder, gentler politics in which 
we stand up uh, for uh, uh, people when they're threatened in which we you know, militate against violence. So how can left-wing groups end up uh, celebrating that violence, saying that they find it exhilarating, turning into an icon, um, those kinds of paragliders? Well, I think it is to do with an ideology that has abstracted away from individual human beings, uh, conceiving them merely as members of an identity group. And then uh, judging the moral status of those identity groups by a set of simplistic moral categories. Um, so, you know, one example here is how we've uh, changed how we think about racism over the course of the last years. And you can mm. see how there's a sensible intention behind that change, um, but that in the way in which it's done, it actually occludes our ability to understand the world, right? So the, the, the sort of yeah. historical traditional uh, conception of racism is that it consists in uh, one uh, 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 person having you know, negative views about members of some other group. Right, racist right. To, be, to be a racist is to say members of this or that group are somehow bad human beings, or inferior, or less intelligent, or more prone to crime, or whatever it is that yeah. you may, you know, be claiming about members of that group on the basis of their race. On the basis of their race, right? Because yeah. you know, people of X race, they're like that. But okay. Right. Um, now, you know, social scientists and and others have rightly pointed out that sometimes people can suffer from structural disadvantage, uh, even though uh, nobody in a particular situation holds those kind of negative views against them. So one mm -hmm. classic example of this, which was more relevant before the rise of Uber and Lyft, um, but which sort of you know, remains, I think, very illustrative, is about trying to hail a cab, right? Let's say that, uh, you know, an African-American uh, in a you know, pretty segregated city is trying to hail a taxi. Um, and uh, they find it harder to get a cab. But many cabbies won't stop for this potential black passenger. Um, now, some of those cab drivers may be racist in that straightforward sense, but may hold those views about black people and say, you know, I think black people are bad for this or that people. But many of them likely don't. Some of them perhaps are themselves black. Uh, and what they're telling themselves is, hey, given what I know about this city, this black passenger is more likely to uh, ask me to go to a poorer neighborhood in which I'm less likely to be able to pick up the next fare. You know, I'd rather drive down the road and pick up a white passenger who's more likely to go to a more affluent neighborhood where it's going to be easier to get the next fare, right? So the cab driver is not necessarily being uh, racist in the original sense. And yet clearly, uh, this black passenger is experiencing a form of racism on the basis right. of their skin color. They have this disadvantage, right? And so that's why we introduced the term of structural or sometimes systemic racism. Uh, those are the two kind of terms that people use for that. And that I think is a useful concept. The problem is that in much of the left, people have not added to our conceptual vocabulary, but rather substituted those terms. They now claim that, as Vice Magazine said at one point, there's no way 
that you can be uh, racist towards a white person. That, um, you know, only a member of a dominant group can be racist towards a member of a dominated group because all racism is structural. Uh, this has led some people like Whoopi Goldberg to go so far as to say that um, the Holocaust was not about racism because in her mind, uh, according to American racial terms, uh, Jews are white. And so therefore, even though the Nazis explicitly uh, had a whole racial pseudoscience, explicitly justified the Holocaust and in, in, in racial and racist terms, that was not about race, right? Um, because mm-hmm. Jews are white and so they can't be discriminated against in that kind of way because white people are privileged, right? Um, yeah. That has become a fundamental uh, problem because it makes it impossible for us to see when racism is perpetrated against members of a group like Jews that in the American discourse are coded as white. To underscore this, I'm I'm now reading from uh, the Black Lives Matter website, the statement that they put out right in the wake of this terrorist attack for the quickly. And they uh, they describe what they say is Israeli Zionism as an impartial, as an imperial project upheld by white Western colonial governments. And they say, on the shoulders of our radical ancestors, we remain ever vigilant in our solidarity with Palestine, knowing that the fates and futures of our people are linked. And they say that for the Black Liberation Movement to succeed, the Palestinian freedom for freedom struggle must survive. So here's where I I think maybe there's there's something very clear about this moral framework that requires support for Hamas in the wake of their devastation and destruction. And we should remember uh, um, Avi Mayer, who is the editor of the Jerusalem Post, is a friend of mine, and he just reminded everyone yesterday they gouged people's eyes out, they cut pregnant women's stomachs open, and they tied parents and children to one another and set them on fire. This is the, this is the context in which you're seeing statements like um, civilians, uh, settlers are not civilians, and that, and that, for example, the struggle of the Black, the Black Lives Matter movement is the same as the Palestinian movement. Can you help us understand this, the, the moral framework that requires this? Because at first, it seems like, well, oh, they're just so confused, but there is no confusion here. It's actually quite coherent. Yeah, so I think the next, so there's two other ideas in that statement that, um, that would help to make up this, this ideology, but it is describing the identity trap. So, so the second of this is um, you know, the, the, the imposition of American identity categories and racial terms on countries uh, in which they really don't make very much sense. Um, and there's something ironic here, because in the name of anti-colonialism, um, you actually, in a very neo-colonial way, are saying, you know, we think about the United States and when we're going to impose how race or other questions of identity work here on these other parts of the world. Right? That was part of sort of what what the gold book went wrong when she said the Holocaust is not about race because in the American scheme, uh, you know, Jews are supposedly, I think even in the United States, that's more complicated, 
um, that Jews are supposedly white, right? Here, this is not the most important racial distinction. So how can the Holocaust have been about race, right? As she doesn't mm-hmm. understand that in that context, the salient uh, uh, ethno-cultural differences between groups were very, very different. And that Germans absolutely, and certainly Nazis, absolutely did think of Jews as racially distinct because race works differently in different parts of the world, right? The recognition that race is a social construct should make that recognition easier rather than harder. And so why is the, uh, you know, this particular part of the Black Lives Matter movement in solidarity with Palestine against uh, Israelis? Because they have coded Israelis as white and Palestinians as people of color. And they have a view of a world in which you can distinguish whites on one side and people of color on the other side. Whites are dominant and privileged and historical perpetrators and people of color, um, you know, marginalized, discriminated against and morally virtuous. Uh, That's not just complicated because in all kinds of parts of the world, you have ethnic conflicts uh, that are uh, much more difficult. You know, in, in China, you have the significant repression of Uyghur people by the Han Chinese, um, neither the Han Chinese nor the Uyghurs are white. This is a conflict among people who would both, within the American context, be considered people of color. And mm-hmm. the same is true in Israel-Palestine. Um, you know, Not only are there Jews in Israel who have origins in uh, Ethiopian Eritrea who, who are black, um, but a majority of uh, Israeli Jews at this point are Mizrahi, um, right. rather than Ashkenazi, which is to say that they have roots in Middle Eastern countries like Morocco and Syria and Iraq and Iran, uh, rather than in European countries, especially in Central Europe, where a lot of Ashkenazi come from. Um, uh, these people are, first of all, uh, not in any straightforward sense uh, white. Um, they are closely genetically related to Arabs and uh, Palestinians. And in visual terms, it is not at all straightforward to uh, see the ethnic difference between um, Mizrahi Jews and Palestinians, for example. Mm -hmm. And secondly, it's really unclear that this American paradigm of, you know, a settler colonialist society, uh, you know, of people coming over from the United Kingdom uh, to America and displacing indigenous people uh, applies in this case. First of all, because of course, uh, Jews are among the indigenous uh, 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 populations of Israel and Palestine. This is in fact where, where Jews originated <laughs> from, even though they have been expelled for lengthy periods of time and there have always been Jews living uh, despite that in, 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 in the territory for nearly all of human history. But secondly, because these Mizrahi Jews in particular were violently expelled from adjacent Middle Eastern countries uh, over the course of the last seven or eight decades. And Israel was the only place they were able to go. So, you know, it is not only perfidious to say that, um, you know, toddlers or grandmothers deserve to die uh, because they are uh, uh, colonists. And that would be perfidious under any circumstances. It would be perfidious thing to say about, uh, you know, uh, uh, American settlers in in in, in the 1700s. Um, but it is doubly perfidious to say about people whose ancestors were expelled from neighboring Middle Eastern countries 
and had nowhere else to go. So here the problem is just the imposition of this really simplistic worldview mm. where you can split the world into white and people of color, into settlers and the colonized, and then impose those categories on very different contexts where they lose whatever plausibility they might have held in uh, you know, the American context. Um, mm. And then finally, there's the, there's the piece here that is inspired by uh, what's called intersectionality. Um, yeah. uh, that is this idea that, you know, black people in the United States will only be liberated if or will only, can only succeed if Palestinians are free in the Middle East, right? Um, you know, whatever you think of the justice of a Palestinian cause, and I recognize that the Israel-Palestine conflict is very complicated, but of course there are um, many uh, vital interests that, 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 that of Palestinians that so we need to um, uh, preserve and to serve. Uh, that's just this puzzling claim, right? Like, why would the world be structured in such a way that mm. the success of one group in one corner of the world should depend on the success of another group in another corner of the world? I can see how some of the same principles might lead you to care about the state of both of them. But why is it that empirically we're supposed to think that these two things are linked in this way, right? You can have mm. um, uh, peaceful and tolerant societies in uh, Scandinavia as well as, you know, terribly uh, totalitarian regimes in North Korea at the same time. And, 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 and you know, at first it's puzzling to, to, to link the fate of uh, various groups by saying, you know, only... Uh, if one of them is liberated, is the other going to be liberated as well? And the answer to why these things have come to look to be linked in this way is the idea of intersectionality and the way in which it's been misinterpreted. Um, so the original concept of intersectionality comes from uh, uh, one of the founders of critical uh, race theory uh, called Kimberly Crenshaw. And she recognized, uh, rightly, I think, that the kind of disadvantage uh, faced by uh, black women, for example, is more than merely the arithmetic sum of the disadvantage faced by white men, uh, by, by uh, black men on the one side and white women on the other side. Um, and she gives the example of a car factory in which black women were the last ones to be hired because of discrimination, and then the first ones to be fired when there was a recession and the actually followed the sort of first in, first out system uh, to determine who to get rid of, right? Mm. Um, and the laws, the, the courts of the time were not able to recognize that because the intersection of identities was not a protected category. They could only claim mm. redress on the basis either of being white women or on the basis of being black. Um, okay, fine. So uh, now that idea got broadened to the claim that uh, in order fight against one form of injustice, we have to fight against all other forms. Because there's these intersections of different identities, right? The only way to fight against the injustice you might experience on behalf of one of your identity category, characteristics is to fight against all injustice that you might experience on the basis of any of the identity characteristics you might possibly share. And that explains why to be an activist in good standing today, if you care about the environment, you mm -hmm. also have to sign on to a particular set of views about trans rights, and you also have to sign on to a particular set of views about the Israel-Palestine conflict. And in, it, 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 
it explains this otherwise sort of puzzling, and I think just wrong-headed empirical belief that you know the liberation of one group is just intricately dependent on the liberation of another group, uh, which might be plausible when you're talking about sort of groups that interrelate in a real way in in in, in the United States today, but that just doesn't seem to be very plausible when you're talking about societies that are you know thousands of miles apart geographically. This is a really it's it's funny that I actually have this written in my notes to 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 offer up, but you mentioned support for climate change, for example, and I I jotted down that Greta Thunberg, who of course is the now iconic uh, young climate activist who has enormous influence among young people, just posted a picture a day or two ago with her friends holding signs in the same photo that say, uh, climate justice now and free Palestine, as if they have anything to do with one another. And so this is a, to me, it's an example of the mutual support you're talking about between organizations with causes, which as you said, are, are empirically wholly independent from one another, um, but as if they rely on one another for, for, for mutual success. Yeah, and it's a way in which, you know, as I, as I chronicle again and again in my, in my book, sort of ideas that uh, might be right or wrong, but that, that are subtle and serious and can help illuminate part of the world become popularized and frankly vulgarized in ways uh, that make them cease having any sense, right? So, yeah. uh, you know, the insight originally by, by Kimberly Crenshaw that, uh, you know, what black women face in society uh, goes, you know, beyond just the sort of component parts of the discrimination they might face as black people in general or as women in general, that makes sense. I think in some contexts mm-hmm. that is a helpful way to understanding the world. But if, as many activists, you then draw from that the conclusion that every single form of injustice in the world is necessarily interrelated, um, that's a problem. And the other problem here is that there's a kind of attendant claim that if I stand at one intersection of identities and you stand at another intersection of identities, then I really can't understand you. And so the way to stand in political solidarity with you is to defer my judgment to you. Right. If you are oppressed in a different way from me or more oppressed than me um, and you're making claims on behalf of your group, then I can't critically evaluate them. My job as a good ally is simply to determine that you're oppressed in this way or at least that, you know, you're, you're a member of an oppressed group um, and to defer my judgment to you. Right. And so as a result, you've had this real change in the activist landscape, including many leading nonprofit organizations. But I think it's been very bad because. In politics, to be effective, it's helpful to limit what you focus on. Say, we are fighting for, uh, you know, against climate change, right? We are fighting to transition our economy in such a way that we can uh, avert really terrible consequences for the planet. And you know what? Mm-hmm. If you disagree with us on uh, geopolitics, or you disagree with us <laughs> on, you know, uh, uh, the best, uh, uh, you know, uh, laws r- regarding reproductive rights. We disagree with us on something else. That's fine, right? We're fighting on this right. corner, and as long as we can link arms on this, we're going to be able to make progress. It and allows us to find common ground with people who don't agree with us on everything. 
that's how we build majority, right? right. I mean, in order to have the legislative action we need on things like climate change, you need to build a majority. But 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 instead, this idea is no, 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 no. You actually have to link this cause to everything else. Otherwise, you're not being uh, sufficiently intersectional. And so you've seen, so for example, you know, the ACLU, uh, you know, denounce the you know lack of rural broadband um, uh, as an affront to uh, its values, or it has said that um, uh, you know, as a matter of civil rights, we need to cancel student debt. Um, I'm in favor of rural broadband. I perfectly understand why many people favor canceling student debt. That is not the historical mission of the ACLU, right? In right. a similar way, the Sierra Club, um, the important environmentalist organization, has started making you know, statements about everything in, in the world. Now, this is two problems, right? The, the first problem is that it's politically often counterproductive because right. um, as you're picking up causes, you always also pick up opponents of those causes. Yes. Right. And when people say, hey, I agree with this environmental stance, and perhaps I agree with eight of the other positions they've taken as well, but when one of the 10 I really don't agree, and if I have to pay lip service to that ideal in order to join, well, then I'll sit at home. I, I won't do that. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. so there's a real challenge here to building the broad support and the coalitions that we need in order to make genuine progress. So this is uh, one piece of this. But the other piece of this, of course, is that you're not expert on those things. You don't know about that stuff, right? If you are, (laughs) um, you know, motivated by the environment and you have some expertise in this, you've thought about this, you've read about this, and then you're asked to also take a position on, you know, nine other issues, well, you're much more likely to make big moral and factual mistakes. And this, of course, again, helps to explain what's happened here, that people have signed on to these statements um, without understanding the conflict in the Middle East, without having the historical background, probably without knowing that there is such a thing as a Mizrahi Jew, right? Right. Um, And so that that instinct towards deference, uh, towards uh, a, a form of political solidarity that is based on the Iranian assumption that we can't understand each other and we should simply defer to each other, rather than on the idea that we can actually be in communion with each other and talk to each other and understand each other and reflect on things for ourselves, come to our own determination about what our values require in the world, is also a part of this for that reason. Let's turn our attention outside of uh, the, the the student groups and the professors, and just for a moment, I, I'm curious about your thoughts on the institutional response, institution being the universities themselves, because I found this um, a little bit more nuanced to 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 come to uh, to come to my view on, which is that many of these institutions, the universities themselves, have really selectively chosen to be silent um, on this particular issue when in the past they've made you know statements about black lives matter and all kinds of um, all kinds of social and cultural and political um, statements that they feel clearly are worth attaching the university's name and reputation to but in this instance many of them especially the elite ones have have chosen a policy of institutional neutrality, or at least that's how they're cloaking it. And so I I did some more reading and I looked to fire um, 
quite often, especially when it comes to, um, you know, what is the healthiest uh, way for a university to to behave? And and Fire has stuck to the, you know, their idea that institutional neutrality is is the appropriate one for universities. But that isn't what these universities have stuck to. It seems that only now they're choosing, and perhaps only in this instance, they're choosing to claim institutional neutrality. So I just wonder how you read the response at the uh, at the top from many of these universities, and then we can get into you know um, the media and and um, the corporate response and stuff. But I'm just curious about how you how you think about how universities themselves as institutions ought to be responding now. Yeah, so I think there's one question about how they have responded and whether that's appropriate, and another question about what actually would be a principal solution to the question of how universities should behave, right? And so in the first question, I think it is very, very evident that they've been deeply biased and hypocritical, right? I mean, for for years, they've gotten into the habit of uh, issuing these, uh, you know, in the best cases, heartfelt, in the worst cases, saccharine statements about all kinds of events in the world, right? Um, the, the the killing of George Floyd, which shocked so many of us, but also, um, you know, the Supreme Court's decision on affirmative action or the fact that Carl Rittenhouse was acquitted in a trial, um, you know, mass shootings um, across the United States and, uh, you know, Russia's attack on Ukraine. I mean, they really, you know, have, you know, dozens of staff now who just seem to be busy writing these statements. Um, so in that context, uh, it was shocking to see that for days after, you know, the worst murder of Jewish civilians since World War II, since the Holocaust, those same universities, Harvard, Stanford, Princeton, Yale, I mean, all, you know, all of them were yeah. unable and unwilling to make similar public statements. Um, and that uh, understandably uh, made people feel that A, they were, uh, did not seem to have the same concern for the Jewish students as they did for students of uh, uh, other uh, ethnic and religious backgrounds. Um, and B, that they seem to be so scared of the uh, sort of ideological left on the campus that they thought they might get in trouble for making the statement that as a matter of course they would make if there had been 1,400 civilians murdered in that way in uh, Australia or Japan or Germany. Um, so, uh, so I think that is just an indication of uh, bias uh, and of cowardice, probably on behalf of many of those institutional leaders. Now, here's the question, you know, um, how do you remedy that? Well, one way, you know, what you can't do is to say, we've been in the habit of making these statements, but now this week we've suddenly decided to stop making statements, right? Mm-hmm. Because that is hypocritical. Then you're just looking for an excuse for your institutional failure. But, but that shouldn't stop us from thinking in a broader way, what is the right approach? And I have to say, as somebody who you know, teaches at the university and who greatly respects the, the president of my university at, at Johns Hopkins University, I, I have no interest in um, reading his statements about world events. Um, you know, I have no need to see in my email inbox um, what uh, his or my university's institutional position is on whatever gruesome thing might happen in the world a month or a year or five years from now. And 
um, it's not just that I don't have an interest in that, it's that I worry about the effect it has. I worry about the ways in which it uh, uh, reveals the institutional priorities of universities in, in troubling ways, sometimes because of political bias or sometimes just because, you know, a, a, a terrible terrorist attack or massacre in Africa where there's uh, fewer reporters, where less of our attention is paid to, might end up going ignored, while a similar massacre in some other parts of the world would then uh, earn a statement by the university that will understandably make um, you know, any international students who might have origins in those countries uh, feel like uh, you know, their plight is being unfairly ignored. Um, and some conflicts are not going to be that co- simple, right? And some conflicts are going to be yeah. members of university communities but have very different views. And their academic freedom is, I think, uh, imperiled or at least restricted when the university speaks in their name, even though they disagree with that. So I agree mm-hmm. with Fire that the best solution is to get out of the damn game of issuing these statements, is to have a consistent policy where the university says, you know, every member of the university can speak loudly for themselves, but we as an institution will not speak in the name of all of our affiliates, um, because yeah. that will keep giving rise to the zero-sum conflict and because um, people may disagree with those statements. The only thing is, you know, you can't invoke that in this situation where suddenly after years of making statements, you're not doing that. But now is the time to institute a commission that adapts this new norm in a principled way. It can't, however, serve as a hypocritical excuse why you suddenly decided to fall silent uh, this past week. I think that's well said and well reasoned. It feels a difficult pill to swallow in this moment as as we see the hypocrisy of their silence, but but over the long term I think it it makes sense. So the question is will they will they continue to hold this position of institutional neutrality as the world unfolds? And I think we right. will Wait to see. And, and then, um, the University of Chicago has adopted this principle a very long yeah. time ago, and it did not issue a statement on Israel-Palestine, and nobody asked it to. Nobody was upset about right. it because everybody knew this institution for years has refused to make those statements, and it refused to make the statements this week as well. No problem, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So as long as you're consistent about it, that's great. What I suspect is that Stanford University and Northwestern University, two of the places that have said this week, that suddenly, you know what, we're no longer going to make statements. Um, I would be surprised if uh, within the next few years we don't suddenly go back to making statements when there's something closer to home that uh, they feel is not going to divide the campus community in the same way. And that would really be yeah. the height of hypocrisy. Perhaps it will positively surprise me, but I suspect uh, that uh, uh, the invocation of considering this principle this week is going to turn out to be doubly insincere. Okay, well, we will wait and see. Um, can we talk a bit about the media response here? Because one um, one phenomenon that you've that you've uh, laid out pretty well in the book is is that these uh, the students who are graduating from these places have taken with them what I what I am just this week calling the upside down um, <laughs> you know, from Stranger Things, but it seems as if your moral compass is just completely inverted when it comes to um, this uh, this tragedy in Israel and uh, the inability to recognize morality at an individual level as opposed to just reducing it to group power dynamics. And 
one way I think that's playing out is at the uh, you know the elite, let's say journalistic institutions that recruit from the Ivy League and from from these universities. And we saw, I think, a just catastrophic screw up by the New York Times in the headline that they printed um, about the uh, the rocket that hit what we now know was the parking lot by a hospital in Gaza. But initially, the New York Times blamed it on Israel and um, and essentially put the same weight of the same scrutiny was applied, which was very little, to Hamas, the terrorist group, as they applied to the U.S. intelligence community's assessment that the rocket didn't come from Israel. And that incident very likely derailed a uh, a diplomatic summit that President Biden was going to have, which could have led to much better outcomes. And I think we may look back at it as a as a very important moment in this unfolding war. And it's uh, sort of inexplicable to me how how this level of bias can persist at the, the the institutions that we desperately need to trust to bring us facts in moments of crisis. And, um, you know, many, many people who are avid New York Times readers can see this now and are, are, um, are worried about the way they seem to be squandering their credibility and, and public trust. And it isn't just them, certainly. But I wonder how you've been reading the media response to this, because even in Europe, for example, the BBC can't call Hamas terrorists, they call them militants, and words matter in moments like this. So can you share your views on how, how you've been reading uh, the way journalists have been covering this? And, um, and then I, I think I have a follow-up question, which is, what do we, what do, we do about it? Because mm. we, can't tear, we, can't, we can't tear down. I had this exchange with a dear friend of mine, Mike Madrid, on the podcast last week, because while recognizing that this was an enormous screw up, you know, he says, well, we can't tear down the institutions altogether. And I said, well, you know, the, the, the question remains then, how do we hold journalism accountable without tearing down the institution? What does that even look like now? Well, and first of all, let me just say that I share a premise. I've been incredibly upset at the poor performance of many of our leading newspapers and news outlets uh, you know, beyond the written press, like the BBC, over the last weeks, um, in part because you know, I, I, I write for a legacy uh, media outlet. I, um, I, I, I believe in their importance. Right? We need sources of information that are accurate, fair-minded, and widely trusted for our society to work. When we lose access. To that trust, that is the world in which we can no longer hold people accountable for spreading lies, for being completely irresponsible. And we've seen a rapid loss in trust in these institutions. In 2003, for example, about 80% of people in Britain said that they trusted the BBC. That is now down to well lower than 50%. And this trust in media in America goes even deeper. So the reason why I care about this and why I shout from the rooftop about the uh, 
the failings of those outlets sometimes is not that I want them gone and substituted by only social media or by um, uh, more partisan actors, but because I think their survival and their performance matters to keep the society yeah. together. And so when we see the depth of failure we have in the last weeks, that is very, very concerning and calls for an honest accounting. So let me set the stage first of all by what the response was two weeks ago. When news of this terrible uh, terrorist attack by Hamas first spread, um, first of all, news outlets were incredibly sluggish to report on the severity of that attack. Um, you know, at the time, I'm truly no fan of Elon Musk. If you were on uh, Twitter for five minutes, you saw, you know, videos and evidence and eyewitness reports and uh, so on that started to give a sense of just the scope and the extent of uh, this uh, tragedy. Um, if you looked at the websites of the major news outlets, uh, you really did not get a sense of the brutality of what was happening. And very quickly, um, they then went with headlines like, you know, Israel uh, attacks Gaza in a response to militant attacks or something like that. So the fact that uh, uh, the Israeli uh, uh, army sort of put a stop to this terrorist attack and um, uh, and started to defend itself was foregrounded um, before readers had really had a chance to understand anything about the severity of what had happened. Now, one way you might defend this is to say that mainstream outlets have a very, very high responsibility for only reporting things that are completely uh, authenticated. That perhaps the reason why they were so reluctant to uh, post some of those videos was so there was an outside chance at the time that some of them may, uh, you know, have been mixed up from other episodes or uh, may somehow turn out to be non-authentic, right? Um, I think that's giving them uh, the benefit of the doubt to the maximal extent, but, but let's let it stand there for a second. So then what happens 10 days later? The Palestinian mm. health authorities, which is like all authorities in the Gaza Strip, an outfit controlled by Hamas, the terrorist organization that has just murdered 1,400 people in the south of Israel, uh, claimed that an Israeli rocket had killed over 500 people uh, at this hospital in the Gaza Strip. And what do those same uh, newspapers and uh, broadcasting institutions do, they plaster this press release all over the website. They send push alerts to millions and millions of people saying Israeli rocket kills 500 at hospital in Gaza Strip, comma, Palestinian health authorities say. So they have a little bit of a performer attribution of this claim, but there's no context provided to allow people to see that this is a claim by Hamas, an organization that has frequently lied about this sort of thing, and it's completely uncorroborated. And it's in complete contrast to the reluctance of those same broadcasting institutions to share some of the horrific videos and other information coming out about the Hamas terror attacks just 10 days earlier. Well, uh, you know, it's now been a number of days 
since that attack. We have uh, independent analysis uh, of the explosion uh, by a whole host of uh, experts using uh, open source intelligence, using the many videos and photographs, uh, as well as eyewitness reports uh, from the site. We have uh, assessments from the intelligence community in the United States, but also in Canada and France and other nations. Um, uh, you know, we have the commentary of uh, independent journalists, and all of it is pointing very clearly in a very different direction. What actually happened is that one of the rockets uh, fired by a Palestinian Islamic Jihad, a, uh, a different terror organization, the Gaza Strip, that co cooperates with Hamas, a rival too, but also cooperates with Hamas. Um, fired a rocket at Israeli territory uh, that was poorly constructed, but misfired. Um, it hit the parking lot rather than the hospital itself, killing, tragically, somewhere between 100 and perhaps 300 people, uh, a, a terrible death toll that uh, you know should be mourned. And of course, each innocent civilian, irrespective of who they are, must always be mourned. Mm -hmm. uh, but that is uh, 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 you know, not just that shows that not just the source of a rocket uh, initially reported was was false, but also, thankfully, the extent of the death toll. Um, the New York Times today, as we're recording this, has uh, a somewhat mealy-mouthed editor's note uh, apologized for yeah. what it did, saying that its reporters should have taken more care. Other news organizations, so far as I have seen have not yet followed suit. So often, you know, what the New York Times does, the others copy, so I wouldn't be surprised if they end up uh, making similar statements in the course of the next 24 or 48 hours. Um, but yes, it is going to be remembered, I think, as one of the biggest journalistic failings, uh, you know, of, of, of the last years. Um, and certainly one of the most consequential ones because of uh, the impact it had on Biden's diplomatic uh, efforts in the region and the way in which it inflamed public opinion around the world. It led to mass uh, protests around the Middle East, and sometimes with um, uh, uh, you know, embassies being attacked, with a, with a synagogue being burned down in Berlin. Uh, in the uh, following hours, uh, there was an attack with Molotov cocktails on a synagogue in, in the center of the German capital. Um, so it was a very, very consequential uh, failing by, by media outlets, made worse, I think, by the discrepancy between how they acted in this instance and how they acted 10 days previously. So the question is, what do we, what does it look like to hold journalists, journalistic institutions especially, accountable when they fail in this way? And can we believe them that they will do better? It's, ve it's very difficult because this, one of the reporters on that headline, and she's still on the byline, was an intern for Rashida Tlaib. And I just noted from a friend, there's new reporting now that the New York Times has rehired someone in the last week. His name is Suleiman Hiji, who as recently as 2018 was essentially praising Hitler. And they've put this person on staff to cover the Israel-Palestine conflict. So it, it, it becomes at a certain point not credible to believe that they're moving in the right direction 
and I, I don't know how ordinary, you know, readers of the news should be thinking about their consumption habits and how much, how, how much scrutiny should they have to use when they're reading the quote unquote paper of record. Yeah, and another aspect of the New York Times coverage that we haven't mentioned is that when they uh, shared um, that initial press release by Hamas, um, uh, you know, saying Israeli rocket hit 500, etc., um, they paired it with an image of a wholly destroyed building uh, that was not of a hospital uh, and splashed that across the website. Now, when you looked at the sort of tiny caption below the image, um, uh, you uh, you know, and, and you interpreted that caption in the in, 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 in the literal sense, you realize that the image accompanying the headline was not of a hospital. But of course, any bit, you know, ah, that's something that I didn't point. I didn't even know that. Yeah. So when you looked at it, you thought Israeli rocket, you know, hit found in Gaza, and then there's an image of a terribly destroyed building um, that you assume was that hospital, but that turns out to be a completely unrelated building. Um, oh. So, uh, I mean, this, this, this too is, uh, you know, a, a, <laughs> a serious failing. And, and those, I didn't know those facts about the personnel of the New York Times, um, but that, of course, is, 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 is concerning too. Um, look, I, I think the reaction that people are having to this is to tune out, is to distrust those institutions, is for them to play a much smaller role in the world. Um, you know, Joe Rogan's podcast now reaches uh, more people uh, than the primetime offerings of uh, Fox News, CNN, and MSNBC combined on many mm-hmm. days. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think that's uh, an improvement. Um, but that is the logical consequence when people cease being able to trust those institutions. And by the way, one argument that I've tried to make to uh, uh, academic leaders, um, uh, to heads of universities, um, not that I, 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 I think most of them have understood the point, um, is that the long-term success of American universities uh, depends on them being seen as honest, neutral brokers that don't take partisan uh, views on the world and that uh, provide a hospitable environment to Americans of all walks of life um, and all ideological stripes as well. Um, We've seen in the last weeks some pushback from, uh, uh, you know, donors to universities that they say feel have Mm -hmm. failed the small task. But more broadly, um, you know, American universities are dependent on the tax exempt status, on plenty of federal research dollars, on all kinds of assistance from the state in order to uh, persist and thrive. And yet we've gone in the last years from clear majorities of Americans trusting institutions of higher learning um, to, you know, uh, in some surveys, a majority of Americans no longer trusting these institutions. And that's going to call into question at some point um, whether Congress maintains the tax exempt status of universities, whether it's willing to continue funding them in all kinds of ways, both direct and indirect. So I think that this really is an existential question for these institutions. And I don't say this in a celebratory way. I think some people who criticize these institutions want to take them down, think that the world is going to be better when everything we have is, you know, Twitter and Joe Rogan and and, and and so on. I don't think that. I want right. to Substack is not going to save the world. Job. 
I want good universities to do serious research and be places of general intellectual exchange. So that is all the more reason for us to raise our voice when we're falling short of uh, those standards. Very well said, Yasha. Um, I continue to tell people privately and publicly as often as I can that uh, the Identity Trap is probably the most useful book I have read all year. And especially in, in this moment of crisis, it has allowed me to see really clearly what is happening. And so I just thank you for adding this context and bringing some, some, some meaning and some explanation to what is, what is, what is head spinning to a lot of people, but I hope that they can begin to make sense of it. Thanks to your work. So thanks for making the time uh, this morning. And I'm sure we have lots more to talk about in the future. Thank you so much, Ron. And um, yeah, always love to chat. Happy to, to come back on any time. All right. Have a good day.